Alright, fucking welcome to This Is an Existential Prison. <laughs> I'm your host. Podcaster? I don't know. What's the name? I don't know. I don't like podcaster. I'm gonna think of something else cool. I'm your talker. <laughs> I'm your talker into the microphone so that you can sleep easier or get over a panic attack aka podcaster if you don't mind I'm gonna light up this fucking blunt and maybe it'll spark some thoughts because I just set up the mic and I have no idea what I'm gonna talk about that's a lie I have some fucking idea I'm like well I'll probably like introduce myself and tell a little bit about my life so that I'm not just like, well, who the, f you know, who am I listening to, right? Uh, well, my name is Prezi, and I'm 37 years old, about to turn uh, 38 here soon, and, um, I am a recovering heroin addict and alcoholic and a writer and content creator and all-around silly guy, professional, semi-professional, minor league silly guy. And, uh, yeah, I live in Las Vegas. I've lived here for um, nearly a year. It'll be a year and like maybe a couple of months, but uh, I'm from Mississippi. I was born in 1984 in uh, Greenville, Mississippi. Which <laughs> is this little town uh, right off the river about three hours south of Memphis. And, um, I grew up weird, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of four, so I did not have an easy time fitting in with my peers and, uh, in general had a difficult time, uh, fitting in with uh, Southern culture, due to my um, natural dispositions and predilections, perhaps, or maybe I was just a fucking uh, off, <laughs> fucking off-putting kid. I don't know, man. I've heard that other ADHD people have had similar issues, but only recently did I hear that. Actually. Um, Sorry, I had to go get an ashtray. Um, I didn't realize how much of ADHD affects like your emotional regulation and just different aspects of how you move in the world that um, make your relationships difficult oftentimes, especially with neurotypical people um 
So, yeah, I started rebelling when I was pretty young. Started doing drugs when I was 14, listening to metal music. Wearing fucking uh, mall goth clothes. <laughs> Some of the stuff that um, the kids today are wearing, ironically, which, you know what? Well deserved, honestly. A lot of that shit that we were wearing was ridiculous looking and deserves to be made fun of. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I tried to get out as soon as I could. Um, I was always interested in like music and art and stuff like that, and I tried various little avenues to um, half-assedly pursue them, you know, like uh, going to community college with, you know, and selecting art as the major, but just having a depressive episode for two semesters, smoking weed and eating ramen and playing PlayStation 2, but I was always very <laughs> I was always very passionate about not wanting to be in my hometown so eventually I moved off and landed in Austin, Texas and you know man uh, I already had a pretty uh, extensive drug history by the time I made it there in like 2005 but it really ramped up I I met some people to hang out with you know instead of just being some uh, crazy loser in their parents house you know in their childhood bedroom or whatever but you know uh, those people had drug problems too so we sort of fed off of each other. And by the time I was 23, you know, I was an intravenous heroin user. And um, a lot of that, I think, was just like not... I had picked up some wrong beliefs about myself, particularly about like not being able to change uh, and... You know, certain things just being the way that they are uh, for life if uh, they are that way. Uh, for example, being an alcoholic and an addict. Now, I, I'm sure that I was aware that other people... I hadn't been exposed to AA until after I'd tried heroin. I was aware that people got sober, but... From the impression that I got before I even went to rehab for the first time was that it's it was something that happened for certain people who got lucky and had some sort of like spiritual thing happen for them, uh, but it wouldn't happen for me because I didn't believe in any of that bullshit. So um, I spent a lot of time you know, doing drugs, in and out of abusive relationships, moving cities. I ended up 
moving to New Orleans after going to rehab and getting arrested for a heroin charge out in Austin. So I'm in and out of jails. I'm back and forth between my parents' house and like these cities that I want to live in and pretend that I'm a functioning adult. And meanwhile, I'm fucking ADHD. I can, I, I would probably barely be able to get a handle on what your average person would uh, at that age. And you just throw all the drugs and alcohol on top of it. It's pretty gnarly. And um, yeah, I spent <clears throat> from like uh, 2011 to 2000, um, like 15, 16. I lived in New Orleans. I was a bartender in the French Quarter. I mean, it was crazy down there, but I was on heroin, so it was like I couldn't enjoy it, you know what I mean? Every time that this, you know, there was a big event happening in the city, that just meant that I had to work. And I had to work because I needed drug money. So I um, eventually ended up going back home to Mississippi when I was like 30, 31, and going back to college for audio engineering because I had been interning at a music studio down there in New Orleans while I was there. And I just fell apart. Um, you know, bef uh, probably a year prior to me moving away from New Orleans, like my best friend had overdosed and died while using with me. Um, and it just, it really messed me up, dude. <laughs> like, I, and you would think like someone at that time who had spent, you know, over half a decade being an intravenous drug user that um, I was pretty well worn with the whole trauma situation and that there wouldn't be much that could phase me. But this really kicked things up from like a CPST, PTSD level to a PTSD level. And I was having like um, five hour panic attacks and night terrors and all kinds of fucking crazy shit. Um, and yeah, basically that went on for like two or three years until finally I reached this breaking point. <laughs> fucking bitch I um while I was going to to school up in Mississippi for this music shit I mean I was psychotic I was making the grades because I was able to do it I, I knew the subject well and I'd always been pretty good at school um which is the reason that I had a scholarship there to begin with which is the only reason that I would have gone you know just some way to get a hold of my drug and alcohol money easier um, because I just didn't think that I was going to um, escape the trap that I was in I was like too far fucked and it was one of those things where I was getting like my day even though all I wanted to do was just like go to class and go back home and get fucked up I always seemed to get in trouble with like the campus police or like 
here I am getting a DUI on a class trip, you know, just causing all kinds of havoc just simply because it's weird for everyone when there's someone who's literally killing themselves on alcohol and drugs right in front of all of you. You know, I, I have empathy for them in retrospect, but of course at the time I was just like, these fucking bastards won't leave me alone. And they, if they knew what pain, what kind of pain I was in, they wouldn't, um, you know, be persecuting me like this. But I um, was doing a lot of shit, man. I, I was, I had quit heroin and I was uh, on Suboxone, but I was drinking like a liter of vodka every day. I was taking all kinds of benzos and shit uh, from. I had a prescription, and I was also getting shit off of the fucking uh, web, like shipped across uh, customs from Singapore, little blister packs of Ezetex and Tramadol and Soma. Oh, yeah, and an Adderall prescription, too, that I was shooting up. So it was all that, plus anything else I could get my hands on. I just feel like um, in the wake of all of that trauma and how it was associated with my heroin use, which was like my answer for so long that, you know, I was trying to like fill that hole with these other lesser substances and they really fucked my body and my brain up. And eventually there was this, after about two years, it's like 15 credits away from graduating. There was this apartment fire. Now I don't know. I don't know if I like pulled a Tyler Durden and burned my own shit down or if it was like my laptop on the bed or something. Um, it's mysterious how the fire started because it didn't start in the room that I was in by the time that I noticed it. But I was on pretty much every drug that I just listed plus like research chemical benzos and I was not in the right frame of mind to really know exactly what was going on. And yeah, I barely, I escaped with um, <laughs> a bag of, a 50 bag of clonazolam pellets. And that's it. Not even shoes. Um, and, you know, of course, me being an addict, I'm thinking all of my drugs have burned up. Is there any way that the Suboxone survived? Because I am about to be in a lot of fucking pain. <laughs> but yeah, basically I had to drop out of college, move back in with my parents at fucking 33 years old, and just... You know, I'm like 70 pounds overweight, um, just horribly addicted to drugs and alcohol, and uh, suffering from a lot of health problems as well. I had like stroke level blood pressure and fucking hypothyroidism, and you know, I had patches of my fucking beard hair falling out. Things were not good on the health front. And I don't blame my body because I was literally filling it with poison every day. Um, so I wasn't in good shape 
and basically I had sort of like a flash of light experience um, you know it's a lot to get into but basically there were some unexplainable events that occurred uh, in the home in my parents home while I was there that coincided with these um, sort of moments of clarity where I felt like certain things had been communicated to me like in an instant without words and like one of those things was like yo this is your fucking this is the last moment I know you've had a couple of tries at rehab you know and you kind of fucking pussyfooted around with this shit but this is the last stop on this train if you don't take it the next one is death and I found out later that my mother had been planning my funeral with her priest secretly and you know it's like I, I feel bad you know and my, what must have that been like to go through you know I've never had any children so I don't know um, but yeah I decided to take that chance and shit man I was just hanging out with like 50 60 year old alcoholics in Greenville, Mississippi for like 18 months. There was like one younger person that came in and sure enough, this motherfucker was a heroin addict from New Orleans and he was about 10 years younger than me. So I was like 34 at the time and he was 24. He was a perfect sponsee and he just like fell into my lap and uh, as far as I know, he's still doing good. Um, big up, Coleman, if you ever hear this. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, man, I didn't, I didn't, and I didn't have any idea of how I was going to be able to leave. Like, my whole entire adult life had been this cycle of like, me not having my emotional and mental shit together, thinking that I'm gonna move to a city, would it be like Austin or New Orleans. There's at one time I wanted to move to Portland, but that didn't pan out. But you know, it's all basically the same fucking idea. I'm gonna get to the promised land, and then once I get there, all these problems that reside within me will suddenly magically be different or easier to deal with and of course that was never the case and you know the access to the drugs in particular heroin which um at the time this was like pre most of it was pre-fentanyl like the last like year or so that i was using opioids was post-fentanyl and i actually had a fentanyl overdose and i'm pretty sure that's what my friend overdosed on as well but um, back then, it was, you know, in this area of the country, Austin, Texas, it was fucking black tar heroin that was coming from Mexico. And in the more, like, southeastern states, it was more of the Purdue Pharma uh, area, pill mills, you know? People had fucking oxy like a motherfucker and Dilaudid, but um, heroin was a little bit harder to come by. 
And, uh, you know, that was not the case in Austin, and it was not the case in New Orleans either. <laughs> I'm sure it's not the case in any major city, but... Yeah, dude. I... Obviously would make the problems worse with the drug use that was my only coping mechanism. And eventually all of this would sort of implode. Usually it would happen all at once and I would just destroy my entire fucking life. I would have like a beautiful girlfriend, lose that, lose the job, get kicked out of the wherever I'm living, fucking total my car. You know what I mean? Like, just total fucking life implosion. And this time I was just like, I'm not going to fucking do that. I'm going to stay here until, you know, the universe sees fit to give me an opportunity to leave. And within that time frame, um, I had started making memes and stuff like that and made a little account. And uh, I was really getting into it. I was shit at it. <laughs> I mean, I guess I had potential, but yeah, I spent a lot of time. I was like either going to AA meetings or like working for this painting business that a buddy of mine in AA had, you know, just out in the fucking sunshine, painting houses, doing work that was just you know it's really different from working in the service industry where you got balancing fucking 50,000 things in your head all at the same time and every single um, pressure point is like a person who's hard to please and this was just like screw in the screws <laughs> you know or like paint the paint I mean obviously there were certain things that take a certain amount of skill uh, with that job, but I wasn't doing any of that shit. <laughs> you know? So it was real easy for me. And uh, other than that, I was just on fucking Instagram. And I had sort of gotten enmeshed in the recovery uh, meme community because... That's what sort of started my interest. I'd sent uh, a meme that I'd, I'd, knowing nothing, sent a meme that I'd made into this huge page, straight to their fucking DMs, and they posted it. And I liked the way that that felt. So I continued to do it. You know, typical addict behavior, chasing the high. So eventually I become friends with this person who runs this large account and they also work in recovery and they had asked they had been asked to supervise a, a sober house and needed a manager and had offered me that in exchange for like doing that job in exchange for free rent and I was like this is it this is the ticket you know um, and I took it but it ended up being horrible. I mean, anybody who's ever been a sober house manager and is listening to this right now, like once I said that, they were like, ooh, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's bad news, but this in particular was really shady. I watched this guy 
fucking rip off a couple of old ladies from St. Vincent de Paul and take rent money for a guy that he knew he was about to kick out the next day. Um, and you know, I was, you know, I wasn't like, um, shocked to the point where I'm like, Oh wow. I'm so disillusioned, uh, with people in general, but it was a situation where I thought someone was a much, uh, more stand-up person than they ended up being. And beyond that, they hadn't even checked with their boss to see if they could give me that offer that they gave me. So they were like, yeah, we're going to have to get them to start paying rent or, you know, find somebody else. I was like, we'll find somebody else then. That's crazy, you know. And I thought I was going to end up back in Mississippi, which wasn't... um, I wasn't too fucking mad about that because so from the drinking and stuff I developed this um, bone disease called a vascular necrosis and it had developed um, dead bone tissue in my left femur and in both of my knees but um, I didn't know that for like the first over a year of recovery. And once my left uh, hip started getting worse, I went to the doctors and finally, you know, figured out what was going on. And um, with this shit, it's very important to catch it early. Didn't catch it early enough with the hip. So I had to get a left hip replacement. Uh, at age 35 and it was gonna I had scheduled the surgery before I even moved off to St. Louis so after all this happened I was just like well whatever fuck it you know but I was still taking the the dudes to meetings and stuff even though I knew I was gonna leave and one meeting I went to I was talking about the situation and a a guy there was like, Hey, I don't normally, I don't have to rent this part of my home out, but I do sometimes to alcoholics in need at a really reasonable price. You can have like the upstairs. It's like two rooms and a bathroom. It's like, that's fucking crazy. You know? Um, and so I took it and Went back home, went through the surgery, stayed at my parents' house. Everybody, all the, the whole surgical team was on board about, look, I'm an opioid addict. You got to limit, limit these fucking painkillers. And they did. And the ones that were used (coughs) outside of the hospital were administered by my parents. I wasn't so stupid to think that. You know, I was just wasn't going to tempt fate on all that. And, um, yeah, it, I mean, it went as well as uh, getting a piece of your fucking femur cut out of your body and sewn back up as something like that can be. And uh, 
I went back up to St. Louis. Surgery was in October of 2019. And I moved to St. Louis in December of 2019. I don't even, I don't think I said this, but my sobriety date is um, 1 uh, 30 18. And um, the other thing, too, I guess I want to say is like, obviously, I'm like smoking. You're like, what? Sobriety date? Yeah, I still smoke weed. And I smoked weed during this, during the whole thing. I mean, I had periods where I quit. For a long time, and one of them was in St. Louis. I quit for like a year or something, um, and I had to quit before the surgeries too. But in the beginning, uh, you know, even though I was going to the meetings and doing all the shit and doing the spiritual stuff and checking in with my sponsor, I was just, you know, that that just um, is part of my journey and uh, still is. Uh, I don't know some like the chronic pain from the surgeries that I had is really what fired it back up and uh, it helps so I will continue to do that but uh, yeah as far as everything else uh, particularly alcohol I have not had uh, a fucking drop I have tripped on acid twice in my four years of recovery, and I had one little slip up on MDMA. I don't even remember the exact date of that, though. Um, But yeah, that's about it. Um, And to be fair, I mean, I was in New York City for the first time in my life, and I was hanging out with an exotic dancer that I was never going to see again in a situation that I was never going to be in again. And I was like, fuck it. You know what I mean? It wasn't even necessarily that I was like, oh, I'm, I'm like craving to roll right now. It was just sort of like the scenario. I was like, man, <laughs> you know, I'm only human. Anyways, uh, <laughs> luckily for me, it didn't spark anything. Uh, and and still, ever since I had my flash of light experience and then went on to do 12-step um, work, I haven't had any cravings for anything. That shit really worked for me. Um, and, you know, I think that, truthfully, the LSD... I have always seen it as a companion component um, to my recovery, and I used it as such. It wasn't like, ooh, let's go have fun and trip. I had stuff that I wanted to um, try to look at and deal with. It's like very, like, <laughs> I guess that's how you trip in your 30s. I'm like, I'm going to fucking deal with my trauma <laughs> instead of like, woo! Uh. <laughs> But that's, you know, um, the experiences that I had on the LSD were spiritual in nature and really confirmed a lot of the, th- the ideas and concepts that I was consuming 
when I was looking for my own spirituality because I had experienced a lot of trauma growing up with like fundamentalist Christians, Catholics, Baptists, you name it, man. And, you know, as an atheist and just like a very nihilistic, like there's no God, there's no anything, it's a void, whatever, for like a long time, most of my adult life. Um, and I've came to find out through my recovery work that a bigger portion of that than I realized was in reaction to, you know, uh, this harm that I'd received in the name of organized religion. So I, I gravitated towards things that were that were distant from that. You know, I was reading the Tao Te Ching. I was starting to check out like Alan Watts videos, Ram Dass, um, and just anything like Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, or just like even like weird stuff that I'd never heard. Just like you know, I I wanted anything different than what I been given as like the only option when I grew up and yeah uh, a lot of the things that I heard there or read there <clears throat> that actually made sense to me and I was like that sounds right and correct um, was sort of reconfirmed in various ways on these acid trips but you know nevertheless um, my sobriety date is my sobriety date for a reason to me primarily because you know it's alcohol even though I was a drug addict it was alcohol that was destroying my bones and my heart like all of my organs like I did more damage to my body with alcohol in three years than I did in seven years of hard drug addiction intravenous you know what I mean like it's fucking bad news if you start to drink very heavily it really fucks your body up <laughs> um, and it wrecked mine so go, you know going from uh, drinking you know, sneaking like vanilla extract and cooking wine in your childhood bedroom to uh, having no desire or thought for alcohol in years is worth celebrating to me, and I do celebrate it. Um, and that goes for drugs too, just any kind of like escape, you know, through all of that spiritual shit. I had realized that my my mo was wrong you know the running from the hedonism the trying to hide from my feelings trying to push them down was wrong that was incorrect and i was supposed to be doing the opposite embracing my negative feelings and learning how to cope and trying to develop understanding and compassion for myself um which takes time and work and can be quite uncomfortable, um, especially in comparison to, you know, when you first start doing drugs and alcohol and stuff and they're 
their illusory power is at its maximum and they've taken the minimum amount from you. You know, it's a, it's, it's a much more attractive uh, offer at the time for people who, like myself, who were in an extreme amount of emotional pain and had no clue of how to alleviate it or if that was even possible and therefore assumed that they were broken people, you know, permanently or whatever. But anyway, uh, (laughs) in St. Louis, I moved in with the AA guy and then three months later, the pandemic happened. And while I was in the sober house, I had gotten my first meme page deleted. And in that interim time, while I was going through the surgery and the surgery recovery process, and I was fucked up on a lot of painkillers and stuff, I decided to take my my new account in this like artistic direction. And I wasn't exactly sure You know, I didn't have all the elements in place yet, but I knew which direction that I was headed in. And I started um, the account that I run uh, now. This is a flesh prison on Instagram in like September of uh, 2019. And yeah, I embarked on that journey. And then everybody went into quarantine. And I'd been continuing to work on this page and work on my aesthetic and uh, I started to have some some hits and some posts that were blowing up and going extremely viral across like all social media platforms and stuff and my page really started to explode. And Yeah, I went from, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't even have uh, 10K yet. And like a year into it, I was at like 45 or something like that. And then another half a year into it, I was up to like 85. So I'd really found a... um, an important creative outlet for myself that a lot of people were resonating with and that gave me the confidence to start showing people my writing and stuff like that which throughout this entire story from like the like back when I first tried drugs when I was 14 I was also writing shitty poetry on a live journal you know um writing was always in my life I mean I played music too and there were times when that took uh, precedent but for the most part man like writing is my bottom bitch and like the idea of being someone who does that for a living on their own terms it like makes me cry like you know in a, in a way that you would cry like at a Christmas movie or something like that you know what I mean you're like 
um, I don't even know what that mood is, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, so that's basically where I'm at now. Uh, I moved from St. Louis to the Bay Area of California in the fall of last year. And the guy, <laughs> the AA guy that I had moved in with, it was his house, you know. Um, and, but he relapsed on alcohol during the pandemic. And it was fine at first, but, you know, over the course of like a year, year and a half, he started to get pretty crazy. And eventually, you know, there were some pretty fucked up circumstances uh, under which I was illegally evicted from the house. Uh, and basically, I had already made the plans to be leaving St. Louis when that happened. So I just stayed in an extended stay. Um, I was Uber driving at the time uh, to make ends meet, and it's pretty good money. So I was just staying in an extended stay, saving up the rest of the money that I needed to go to California. And then I moved out to California only to find out I couldn't get my Uber paperwork through because it requires a new background check. And the company that does all the background checks uh, for all of the rideshare apps was like fucked up in California and Massachusetts. So if you're waiting on a background check like I was in the most expensive area of the fucking country, uh, you know, I just ran out of money. It was, I tried to hack it for like two, three months, and I was like on the verge of homelessness. And one of my followers um, offered me a room uh, temporarily for about a month uh, to try and get on my feet in Vegas. And I was like, you know what? that's better than my other options right now. <laughs> um, which is be homeless in San Francisco or go up to Portland with a very mentally unstable person who was likely going to abandon me there. So, um, yeah, I ended up working out. I've got my own apartment now. Um, I still do like Uber driving and Lyft to uh, pay the bills when business is good. Uh, when it's not, you know, I try to do, make money through my Instagram, either through merch, Patreon, um, donations, uh, and commission work. And I am in the process of launching a Substack and writing a novel. And the novel is about the period of time from when I left St. Louis to when I got this apartment in Vegas. Because I, I mean, I not only did I drive across the entire fucking country, I went up to Chicago first. And maybe about a month before that, I went to New York City for the first time. That's when that whole MDMA thing happened. <laughs> um, which... Look, brief summary, 
I was Uber driving while I was at this extended stay one night, 2, 3 a.m. I hit a fucking deer, man. I'm taking these fucking drunk teenagers or whatever the fuck. They may have been old enough to drink. I don't know. It wasn't my business. But, uh, yeah, I hit the fucking deer and it fucked my car up. It caused like $5,000 worth of damage and there was some bullshit with the insurance because I was Uber driving at the time and it just, it held me up for about a month and a half and this um, content creator slash exotic dancer who made uh, memes that I really, really respected and appreciated um, was like, we should hang out and I was like, okay and so we talked for a couple of weeks and we just did it planned out a trip she was going to move to canada soon and leave had been living in new york city for five or six years i guess um something like that and and her time was up so to speak so she wanted to experience it perhaps through the eyes of someone who had never been there uh that is not how it ended up panning out. <laughs> uh, but I think that was the sentiment. Anyhow, I think that's pretty much it, man. Um, I mean, obviously not. I just don't want to like... I mean, I have so many stories that I'm starting a podcast. <laughs> like, I have as many... Uh, things to say as there are um, bits of data to uh, put into my hard drive with my voice in them or on I don't know how fucking technology works (laughs) just look okay I've got a lot of stories many of them are crazy some of them are funny a lot of them are sad um, hopefully a few of them are relatable and I'm going to try and um, tell it to you and also give you other stuff I don't know I'll pro- I will have probably guests at some point I'm going to try and improve the audio I mean this is literally fucking see this is what I'm talking about dude I'm not fucking prepared I don't have any headphones on I just plug this microphone into GarageBand. I was like, fuck it, let's go. I tried to do the same thing with my phone. And the the phone, the fucking quality of the audio was just so bad. I was like, I can't release that. But hopefully this is all right, you know. And if I listen back to this and it's not all right, maybe I can at least like tweak it with a fucking compressor or something. Make it sound somewhat nice since I went through all of the trouble to... Um, learn all of that shit for audio engineering just to literally flame out and not get the degree. <laughs> um, okay, so I think I'm done. I'm very hungry, so I'm going to go cook myself some food. But yeah, that's it, man. Uh, this is an existential prison. I am your talker extraordinaire. Crazy, and uh, maybe next time uh, when I record this, it won't sound um, like I'm in 
the deep ravine of a fucking glacier. <laughs> anyway, uh, y'all be easy. Be cool to people.